Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Boink Radio Podcast, your one-stop shop for all Boink and science news from the past week. I'm your host, Jay Ringo, joined as always by our favorite Australian Boinker, Delta, from down under. I gotta find some alliteration for your name. How's it going, man? Oh, really tired. You got me up early this morning. <laughs> it's not my fault. Your clock's down there. Also, don't adjust to daylight savings time, apparently. <laughs> Hey, it's one day. I'm one day ahead of you, so you're still sitting on Friday the thirteenth, the spooky, the spooky Ooh, day. Is it Friday thirteenth? Oh man, uh, show's canceled, guys. I'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. I was telling folks before the show. I almost just, like I was driving and I almost hit two cats yesterday at the same time because they were chasing. Well, one cat was chasing the other across the street. It's the scariest thing in like the past week. <laughs> Over here, you get kangaroos chasing each other across the street. <laughs> Seriously? I feel like if you Yeah, I can kangaroo... post the video later. Just remind me. I'll show you. <laughs> they have big fights. Big punch-ups. Oh, I've seen some kangaroo fights in my day. Uh, not like in real life on YouTube, of course. It's like I've watched <laughs> videos of the, the Windows logo screensaver trying to hit the corner of the monitor and kangaroo fights. That's like a solid Saturday for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, we're all about to get quarantined. It's what we're going to be doing. Go ahead. I'm just admitting it for the rest of us. It's okay. <laughs> Legit though, I actually just went grocery shopping too. I just wanted dinner, and uh, there was nothing. I couldn't like get dinner. There's no food. It's getting uh, all the doomsday preppers. <laughs> yep, no food, toilet yeah. paper, or laundry detergent, which was really weird. But yeah, we still have sh- toilet paper shortages. <laughs> still? Shoot. Yeah, we still do. I hope they stock us faster than they stock you guys. I mean, come on. Our, fa- our factories are running in overdrive. <laughs> we have some factories that are just like working twenty four seven. I wonder how bidets are doing. Like, is there a huge demand for bidets now because no one can get toilet paper? Hmm. Well, probably in like all the European <laughs> countries. I'm sure they already have them in there, so they're, they're not going to need it. Yeah. How do we get here again? <laughs> Tell to how's I think it's time to talk disorder? about the tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's pretty typical because I I, I woke up at six thirty in the morning, and then you said, "Oh, the the point radio is happening at seven seven a.m. my time." Right. I only just woke up, <laughs> so I, I didn't have time to choose a good tea. So all I did was I got my lovely Australian afternoon tea. I'm a bit disappointed because we ran out of honey, so I had to use some sugar, which is disappointing. Um, Sorry. And yeah, just some biscuits. <laughs> like, hold on. Are we going to have to... Do we move this an hour later now? Because apparently your clocks don't move forward with the rest of the world? No, no. I'm, I'm happy to do it earlier. Good? <laughs> yeah. It's entirely... Up- okay. All right. <laughs> it's just I didn't know there was no daylight savings on my calendar it says daylight savings comes a month later what it is what is this so weird whatever we'll roll with it we'll do it live so my tea is the usual coffee um and a glass of water it's very exciting I don't understand also how you can drink a hot beverage and water right next to it well it's delicious maybe you can hear the sound of me pouring some especially if you do espresso you get some bubbly water with that oh just it hits the spot I'm completely and utterly confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it's going to stay, because it's time for... The intro! The intro. Hey. That was easily the smoothest that has ever gone. <laughs> so, All right, make jump. sure you do the Boink Workshop this time. You forgot <laughs> it three times. <laughs> We're going to jump right into that. First news of the day. We are, of course, 
continuing our tribute to SETI at Home. This is part two as uh, SETI at Home is stopping work units at the end of March. But first, we got a couple news items. This first one, as Delta said, is something that I forgot to bring up the past three weeks in a row. <laughs> We've mentioned it before, though, so I don't feel too bad. It is the Boink Workshop, the 2020 Boink Workshop, which, as far as we know, is still planned uh, for September 7th to the 10th. And it is being hosted by the wreckingcraft.net team, which is really cool. This is the first time a workshop will be hosted by a Boink team and not like last uh, last year was hosted by World Community Grid. And I think before it was hosted by universities and institutions. So really cool to have Wreckingcraft hosting this thing. Uh, and it's coming out of the physics department of the Phillips University in Marburg, Germany. Uh, and I'll just read this really quick. The annual workshop is designed for researchers, scientists, academics, developers, and volunteers with any level of interest in Boink open source volunteer computing platform. All are welcome. So you don't need to be a project, a project head. Uh, you don't need to be uh, a cruncher even. You can just be someone who loves Boink and wants to learn about it. Uh, I did go last year at in Chicago, the one hosted by World Community Grid. It was a lot of fun. And I think this year's is going to be structured very similarly, where like the first couple days, I think the first two days are, there's only three days. So <laughs> I think there's, uh, there's uh, sort of like presentations for the first day, maybe the first day and a half. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then there's uh, workshops sort of the second day. And at in Chicago at IBM's headquarters, we did uh, sort of UX UI workshopping on how to make a good design for an open source platform. And as I've said many a time, if you are a designer or a marketer and you're looking for that resume builder, get into open source, do any FOSS project. They will love you for it. You get to do whatever you want because there's no one else there. And it's a GitHub Easy resume. And that's evolved beyond just meaning that for coders. You can now GitHub as your resume as anyone from an organizer to a designer. And uh, I would of course say, come into Boink and help us build out a good UX UI for Boink. Um, a little more information about this workshop. There is a link to the agenda here. I don't think they have anything really fleshed out yet as it is still just getting started going. There's a place to sign up. Uh, they will have a live stream or at least they plan to. Uh, they already have the equipment ready to go. Uh, the live stream was really useful last year. So if you can't go to Marburg Delta, <clears throat> I meant to say cough, cough Delta instead of actually coughing. <laughs> Look, they'll get it down to Australia one day. One day. I'm going to advocate for it. You should, man. Do it on the live stream. going to keep annoying people. <laughs> you can tune in for the presentations uh, through the live stream when it gets going. But of course, it's not the same as being there live because you get to hang out and meet everyone and talk and share fun stories. And uh, I know in Chicago, we all went out and got a deep dish pizza. There'll probably be something similar in Marburg where you like go out to a beer garden or something like that. And on the last day, uh, I think the tradition is to do some sort of hike or walk or group event uh, in Chicago. We took a long, beautiful walk down the waterfront. Um, I think they did a hike the year before that. Uh, so who knows what they're going to do uh, over there in Germany. Uh, I have a solution to the not being there problem. Yeah? Okay, so what you do is you set up a little RC car with a camera on it, all right? And you live stream that to the live stream site, wherever they live stream it. And you let the people on the live stream control the RC car. 
And then they can go around and start driving and take a look and say hi to people. That's actually, that sounds really fun. It's like uh, everyone's going to have to, we're not going to talk about coronavirus, but it's just a joke. It's what everyone's going to have to do uh, with like surrogates, machine surrogates, where you put a camera on a car and drive around. It's the future of oh, work, no, not guys. that movie. <laughs> uh, last little thing here. Attending the workshop is free. There is no fee for it. You just sign up and you go. Uh, and I don't know. I've never been to Marburg, Germany. Uh, I've never been to Germany. It sounds like it's a beautiful place. I've did a little Googling on it. Uh, I think the school is one of the oldest universities. Uh, it was founded in 1527 by Philip the Jesus. First. Yeah, it's one of Germany's oldest universities and uh, the oldest still operating Protestant university in the world. So I'm sure the buildings there are just absolutely beautiful. So uh go ahead and just go for that if you want <laughs> uh yeah so that is that the boink workshop 2020 still on for the 7th to the 10th of september uh if there is any disruption to that due to the whole pandemic thing that's going on right now we will bring it bring that news to you as soon as we get it um but so far everything that's been postponed is being postponed to the fall so well i think everyone's waiting to see what happens in april with the virus whether or not it's going to go away in the summer etc etc so moving on from that one more quick thing of news here uh this is coming out of world community grid the smash childhood cancer project is back up and running they have a new principal of x investigator and a new project target and uh delta i got a question for you did you know did you know that foxes might be able to cure cancer jeez i never knew that they're squirrely little devils i know they're adorable they sound great and uh, I guess they also play a role in cancer. But all those things still being true with the adorable little protein you shared the other day. Uh, <laughs> I'm, ta- I'm talking about a yep. protein called Fox. So this new run of uh, Smash Childhood Cancer Project out of World Community Grid is being headed by Dr. Godfrey Chan, taking over for Dr. Akira Nakagawara, uh, who is stepping down just to spend more time with his family. Uh, Dr. Chan is... Uh, reinvigorating the project and directing it towards two new targets. These are proteins in the human body. One is called PRDM14, and the other called is called Fox01. So uh, I'm Fox. sure <laughs> that'd be cool. I'm sure it's just as cute as Star Fox. To be honest, Star Fox is a cutie. Uh, so <laughs> a little bit on these really quick, and uh-huh. um, <laughs> I'm just going to uh, read straight from World Community Grid's release. I will put the link in the description to this episode, so check it out for yourself. But here we go. PRDM14 is involved in intracranial germ cell tumors, IGTC, IGCTs, that primarily affect adolescents and young adults. These are very rare brain tumors that have a much higher incidence in Japan and East Asia. In addition to IGCTs, PRDM14 also affects non-small cell lung cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, as well as prostate cancer. So they're trying to look at these proteins, learn a little, or that protein, learn a little bit more about it, and hopefully in learning more about it, they can find a cure for it. I think it's um, interesting that uh, they, they do mention that it has a much higher incidence in Japan and East Asia. So uh, assuming that, uh, it would probably mean that it is it has some sort of ties to genetics. And I just find it interesting that um, cancer always seems to have some fundamental tie to the genetics of our DNA pretty much. Yeah, we've talked about this before, where it's like um, cancer used to be viewed as this just one-all thing. Every, you just have cancer. And, well, it turns out that humans are 
different from one another. And there's genetic pools and there's individual differences. And everyone has a different type of cancer. And when you can develop patient-specific cancer treatments, all of a sudden you can fight the cancer much better. And distributed computing is actually a really powerful tool in that fight. If you can anonymize a patient's data and then put it into this giant supercomputer, you can throw a, a list of compounds, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of different compounds long at the cancer and find out which one is most effective for which patient and then cure people with a higher uh, rate of success. So I agree with you, man, that 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 genetic implication of it affecting people in Japan and East Asia is pretty neat. And we're only just starting to discover and explore patient-specific treatments for not just cancer, but for everything. Pretty yeah, neat. I was going to say, for those who don't understand how the genetics of cancer works, it, it's basically, imagine a virus, except it uh, the virus mutates depending on the person. So for every different person, they'll have a different virus, but which means that essentially can't have a vaccine for it. So that's why we've got to do lots of research into cancer. Absolutely. And uh, they're not stopping at this PRDM14 protein. They're also doing the cute FOX01 protein, which is believed to play a role in the development of a number of cancers in addition to childhood cancers, including prostate, endometrial, pancreatic, and some others. And of course, once they finish working on these two targets, they'll find a couple others for people to crunch. Uh, so if you want to help uh, advance cancer research, sign up for World Community Grid, um, select the Smash Childhood Cancer Project, or just select all the projects, and some of your work will go towards this project itself. And uh, let your computer crunch some science when you're not using it. It's a pretty neat thing. There's a picture of Fox01 for you. Really? It is? I mean, it's only cute because they colored it like that, but it's pretty cute. I like the blues and the teals. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the news I brought for you today. Any, with, any more thoughts on that before we get into the study? Um, jib jab? No, I think we're pretty good on that one. I've got one thought, and uh, it's about that time of the show where we, we reach out, we, we remember we the four the letters. Stars. We touch the stars, the four letters and the stars that help us produce this show. Do you remember what they are oh, this no, week? On, uh, don't tell me we're using a Ouija board. <laughs> the Ouija I board think it's for... fitting for Friday the 13th. <laughs> so the Ouija board, put your hands on the mouse, on your mouse right now, and it will highlight the right letter. It's highlighting an L. Oh, oh, it's moving. It's highlighting a B, and it's highlighting an R, and a Y. Dot science. This show is brought to you by this group called library.science. Spirits have spoken. <laughs> Library.science uh, is a group that focus on, focuses on the curation of science news, the creation and curation of scientific content like this podcast and some others, the spread of science literacy, communication and education, and the advancement of the decentralized scientific system, uh, that whole Web, point, Web 3.0 part. Uh, and they help support the show. So huge shout out to them. You can check out Library, which is a decentralized content hosting platform at lbry.tv, library.tv. Again, lbry.tv. Or you can learn more about that protocol, which is also part of the Web 3.0 future at lbry.com or lbry.org. Um, check it out. It's a pretty interesting platform that has uh, a protocol behind it. So it can do some some cool stuff beyond just hosting content. Why can't I just go to my local library? Well, Delta, you can and you should. Support your local library. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, everyone, support your local libraries. Don't make them go out of business. They're really fun places. <laughs> they are. You know, they don't get enough credit. And uh, yeah. Shout out to all the libraries out. out there. Shout out to, 
All right, moving on. So this is part two of our four-part tribute to uh, SETI at Home, the distributed computing project that started it all. Not the first distributed computing project, but the one that started Boink. It morph morphed. <laughs> Murph. Uh, <laughs> it morphed right Lupa. into Boink. <laughs> it morphed right into Boink, the Boink infrastructure out of SETI at Home. So we're going to go over a little bit of the history of SETI, but you know what? I don't think we should start with SETI at home if we're talking about the history. I think we should start way back on July 20th, 1969. Delta, do you know what that day was? Uh, it was approximately 30 <laughs> years before I was I born. <laughs> <laughs> same, same, almost. But not just that. It was the day the eagle had landed. It was the day Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Now, why are we starting back on in 1969, if we're talking about the history of SETI. I think I can answer this because I watched Hidden Figures. Was it because I... of computers? Ooh, no. Good, good thinking. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so, Apollo 1969, that is, you know, that's the, the um, Cold War. It's the, the Apollo program had been advancing for some years at that point, but it was advancing incredibly quickly. It was two superpowers putting a whole bunch of money into science to yeah kind of fight with each other but that money went to science and from that science we got a lot of really cool stuff that we're still using today like the modern computer uh but also it gripped the sort of the hearts and minds of the world really for that day and like a couple days afterwards july 20th 1969 the world kind of just stopped and uh Got a little introspective. Um, what what did it mean? We just landed on the moon, like as little bipedal hominids. That's so weird. We just this thing that we had been looking at as a species for our entire. We made existence. one small step. One small step, and indeed one giant leap. Because watching this video, watching this television televised landing on the moon, was this guy named. David Getty. He was a young man. He's uh, probably about nine years old, nine or ten. And he saw this, and I'm sure it played a huge, huge part in him going on to spend his life in the sciences, along with a lot of other people. It was a huge engager for people. Uh, many of the generation beyond us, Delta, <laughs> are in sciences because of this Apollo program. Like I said, including David Getty, who, <laughs> according to him, on September 11th in 1994, was having a drink with a friend, Craig Kasnov, uh, at a party, and they were talking about Apollo 11. They were talking about how it gripped the entire world and got everyone into science, and they were thinking, hey, how? what would it take for that to happen again to get people into science and just forget about what nation they're from or who they are or what their culture is? Just love science and discovery and humanity and they thought aliens you know aliens <laughs> so, <laughs> right. like like me <laughs> exactly like me as a little kid like you like your dad like we were talking last week i come from a land down under <laughs> you want to just discover some aliens yeah sure why not SETI at home let's go and that that's why they built SETI and it worked it freaking worked 1994 is the idea they spent years working this thing out and then on May 17th 1999 SETI launches 
and it was it gripped more people than they could handle you know their computer shut down like the day or like the week that it started because so many people were trying to to sign up and they expected you know just a couple thousand maybe would come up maybe a hundred thousand max at some point they had millions of people logging in because hey aliens let's go so hey <laughs> it's absurd so before we go further i'm just gonna rattle off some names here and i already gave you a big one david getty brainchild he's not a brainchild steady is his brainchild <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say we got david getty we got brainchild <laughs> and who else so david getty got together with this guy woody sullivan and then they looped and in his brainchild <laughs> and his brain don't talk to me or my brainchild ever again <laughs> <laughs> oh my god someone please do it make it happen so david getty loops in woody sullivan coming out of uh university of washington i think and uh then they loop in david anderson dan werthmer werthmer Eric Corpola and Matt Kolopsky. And uh, forgive me, guys, if I'm mispronouncing your names. Uh, and they get to work. Uh, David Anderson does a lot of the, uh, spends a lot of time coding the thing, just volunteer, like we were talking about last week. A lot of early SETI was just pure passion, just volunteer. These guys wanted to make a project that would get people interested in science. And also, you know, they like SETI and they've been, some of them have been a part of SETI before. So, hey, why not do aliens? <laughs> It was awesome. And then uh, some of the early developers here, I'm just going to rattle them off. Forgive me uh, if I butcher names. Kyle Granger, Charlie Fenton, Ron Walton, Brad Silem, Hiram Klossom, Eric Person, and Ron Hipshin did the website. Bob Banky did the database. Uh, Sumit Gupta and Bob Johnson from NVIDIA helped out uh, working with the hardware. So like I said, Early SETI did not SETI at home did not have funding for hardware, but it was donated by this company called Sun Microsystem, which does not exist anymore. That was Greg uh, Pop- yes, the old Sun Microsystems. <laughs> that was Greg Papadopoulos, uh, Emil Sarpa, and Catherine or Catherine Hartzell. And then some more hardware came from Tom Crosby and Mark Grimms from Overland Storage, Jose Zero from Intel, and Bill Wilcock from Packet Clearinghouse. And then, uh, of course, all those volunteers that I keep alluding to, they helped translate the site into many, many different languages. They ran online help desks. They served as moderators on the forums. They created teams and drove community engagement. They built more websites than the other than just the main SETI at home website. Uh, they helped port the application to all different kinds of computers because as we'll probably discuss next week when we cover more of the technical aspects of SETI, um, when you're building distributed computing apps, applications. Uh, you have to make it so it can work on a lot of different computers, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, these volunteers I'm a also... programmer, and I can say that is very true. <laughs> and uh, these uh, volunteers also helped just develop the code because it was uh, some open source stuff, and they developed designs and logo. So on top of that, they did eventually get funding to get it off the ground. It wasn't a lot, uh, and it was very difficult to kind of find out where and how much the how much money these uh, people gave. <laughs> but from the Planetary Society, I think it was $50,000. And that was in large parts thanks to Lou Friedman and Charlene Anderson. Uh, and then, so that was for getting SETI at home off the ground. And then there's this program called the California DIMI program. I'm not entirely sure what that was, but they gave some money to early SETI at home. That was thanks to Steve Berman and Ann Dean. And then it, transitioning SETI at home to Boink, that came from an NSF grant, thanks to Mary Midoff. So 
that is the list of names I was able to dig up. Uh, so a huge thank you to everyone involved in that. And I'm sure there were more people that have helped along the way. Those were the early contributors. Uh, but primarily a huge, huge thank you to all the volunteers who have contributed over the years. Uh, these are the people that got us started, put it together, had brain children, and, <laughs> and the volunteers are the ones that oh, kept no. it going. <laughs> They're reproducing. <laughs> so that is a quick rundown. You know, it starts at Apollo 11, inspires this guy, David Getty, to get into science. Then 40 years later, 30 years later, 20 years, 70, 70 80, 90, 20 some odd years later, he's like, hey, how can we repeat that feeling for a whole new generation? And they develop SETI at home when this group of people comes out May 17th, 1999, gets overloaded because it's so popular because people are saying to themselves, hey, aliens. And it launches a whole new era of scientific communication, uh, public engagement, uh, through distributed computing. So there's a whole other networking aspect to this, but I'm going to take a drink of water here. So, <laughs> so what, do you, what do you got? Oh my God. I've already finished my tea. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1999. So that was about when I got involved with it. Because when it did come out, it got so popular so quick, like we were saying last week, that it got on the news, national television here in the US, because uh, it was an amazing driver. And SETI, you know, has been around since what, the 60s? Uh, and so now you tell were... me I wasn't alive then. <laughs> <laughs> what was SETI doing? You want to talk about the wow signal or anything back then before oh. like SETI before SETI? <laughs> oh, okay, right. So a little history about radio signals. Um, the first ever radio signal that really like sort of sparked all of it was the wow signal. And do you want to know what the aliens told us? I'm making a hot pocket. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what they were doing because they told us six e. Q-U-J-5. Does that sound what like a hot pocket mean? to you? That sounds so sloppy. <laughs> but no, the, the what, what that represents is the, the higher the number um, in base 64, um, the basically the more intense the radio pulse. So, for example, uh, a zero would be no pulse at all, whereas a one would be a very small like sort of noise and ones are scattered all around these signals. Whereas if you go up and up and up to, to nine and then to A and then B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way down to Z, which is the highest um, intensity of signal. And uh, yeah, so it basically it was a big tape that has all these numbers and letters on it. And someone found a signal which just said 6EQUJ5, which was a pretty, pretty large pulse. It went like, it, 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 it was like a bell curve. So it started out small, came up really big and then dropped off a bit. And he, whoever found it, um, he, uh, who was it? It was Amons. Amons? Ehmans. Uh, he circled it and uh, he said, wow, with an exclamation mark. And so that's pretty much what started it all and what uh, got people hopping onto radio telescopes and building new radio telescopes. And I think SETI started out with, um, I think there's a radio observatory somewhere in the middle of America somewhere. Um, I'm not too uh, familiar with it, but uh, SETI did start out with data from there and smaller radio observatories. And then uh, it scaled up to take on different observatories around the world. Like, for example, in Australia, we have the Parkes Radio Telescope. You have uh, Arecibo um, out somewhere else. Um, and yeah, so yeah, SETI really scaled up to start collecting all this data and start crunching it and seeing if it can find another wow signal. And uh, it has found some particular things, but I think we'll leave the results to another episode where we can talk about in depth about what SETI actually does. Cool. Yeah. And I think uh, 
the original SETI project actually used a form of distributed computing. It was very localized. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about this, but they were doing, uh, they were using their computers in their building to crunch the data uh, back in the 70s. They were networking together, I think, and, and just running it there. Because even back then, they were running huge amounts of data. They were collecting, just, just looking up at the sky and processing stuff. So they take that concept from the 70s and then 20 years later, find a way to engage the public with it and create this giant network, this distributed computing network at the dawn of the age of the network, the age of networking, whatever you want to call it, you know, you've digital age, age of networking, where all of a sudden we as a society, as a species, start networking all our computers together. And these guys have the novel idea to uh, use it to search for aliens. Uh, out of this networking sort of concept, you get projects now like World Community Grid that we were just talking about earlier that are solving, uh, trying to solve the cancer problem, trying to find cures for cancer. You've got projects like CPDN, commonprediction.net, trying to model the future of climate. You've got math problems. You've got uh, all sorts of problems, cryptographic. Uh, Even I don't know efficiency problems. Um, the old DHEP, one of my favorite projects, go. but unfortunately it's dead now, trying to predict the most efficient um, layout for a self uh, a self correct self-error correcting computer amen and you're getting this web 3.0 stuff which is uh just based on networking and building taking the concepts of networks and building them out into a social concept so the idea of a social network uh sort of evolving to combine a technological network uh and it's developing in really cool ways. And actually, we you just did the, the Milky Way at Home project brief. So anyone listening, that'll be uploaded shortly after this episode. And you mentioned when you zoom out and look at the universe, you see this sort of web of galaxies and stuff. That is kind of what a network is, where you concentrate people or data or specialize something going on, specialize a task in one node of the network, and then uh, specialize a different task in another node, and you get these edges that connect the two nodes together. Well, that's what SETI did on a very uh, fundamental level. You have all these computers around the world uh, specializing and crunching the data and then sending it back to another node, the project server, which specializes in storing and analyzing it, right? But it's amazing to think that this was 1994 when they thought of this. Oh, but let's move forward. So we covered the early days. SETI comes out in 1999. Uh, they're overwhelmed with the reception. And then uh, they get this NSF funding. And in 2002, they end up launching the Boink infrastructure. Because the people who ran SETI, uh, some of the folks that I named off are like, well, this is really cool. We've got the public engaged in a way that they haven't been in a very, very long time. Uh, and we're also getting real world results. This would be neat to get out to other scientists who are just starting to do computational science and need resources because supercomputing uh, is still very expensive. It was probably more expensive back then. Uh, and, and here we have this infrastructure that we could just give to people, make it open source and let anyone contribute to it. And let's build on it and uh, see what happens. So NSF thought that was a great idea, gave them some money and they built it out. 2002. Boink launches, and you get projects like Royal Community Group coming in. You get Milky Way at home. You get Einstein at home. Uh, Einstein at home is run with LIGO. Uh, you get CERN, LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is now running data using the same concept that, again, SETI at home was not the first to do it, but it was the first to really drive that uh, that that participation, that public participation aspect. So you have people like me and Delta coming in, 
I don't know about Delta. I'm not like a hardcore scientist. I love science, but I'm doing these projects and I'm learning about the science. And uh, because Boink is open source and permissionless, I'm here able to contribute in whatever way I can to the network. So it is a really cool concept uh, that moved forward from 2002. Uh, Boink just continued to develop. Really, that was it. They brought in a couple more projects. Projects came and gone, came and went. Uh, and then 2013, I think, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure. Uh, Boink, it gets, uh, Boink leaves the Berkeley umbrella and becomes a open source organization. So there's no longer a single person leading the project. It uh, is currently managed in the same way. They create a project management committee. Uh, they have more people taking up positions of responsibility. They sort of decentralize that way. And that sort of prepares a boink for this future where we have networks running things. And networks aren't run by people. They're kind of run by protocols. So uh, I think the future for boink, because of that move, uh, is particularly bright. I was going to say, um, yeah, so SETI has basically given us the infrastructure to continue this into the future. And now that they're uh, going into hibernation, we're going to have a lot of supply of computing power. So uh, if you're a project out there that needs computations, now is probably the best time to hop on and try and get stuff done. And um, I was going to say also where uh, the Boink, Boink uh, developers are planning to make it a lot more easier for scientists to get on board. And um, yeah, so hopefully in the future we can get some new projects coming in. I'd love to see some new projects. It's always lovely to see some new projects coming on. Absolutely. And to tie that into what I was just saying, it's like the Boink developers, yes. But at the same time, if you're listening to this and you're like, I can help with that, come help. Anyone can help. GitHub is your resume. Uh, help build this thing. You're going to learn about science. You're going to learn about networking, uh, not in like a social way, but in like a technical way. Uh, we had uh, Tamash on here uh, several weeks ago, and he set up a Boink project, and he talked about how he had to learn to do the client side, the service side, the website, uh, and the application building side, and then also had to learn about the science behind the application he wanted to build. So if you want to build a Boink project, that's five fields of science or engineering you just learned about by building this thing that's going to help uh, humanity. So lots of opportunities there. And uh, I just posted a link here in the chat room uh, coming out of universe today and going to what Delta was saying about we've got all these people coming from SETI at home as they sort of restructure the back end, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, they do, last week we were like, oh, it'd be cool if they highlight some projects. They highlighted some projects here. Um, the leaders of SETI at home encourage people to check out similar open source computing projects like Milky Way at home, Einstein at home, Asteroids at home, Cosmology at home, and LHC at home. So these are all um, sci or space uh, oriented projects, or LHC is sort of physics, but physics. Well, is it still has application of space because all Thanks those so. subatomic particles are all spinning out and being spat out by the suns and stars and everything. So it still makes sense. Definitely. And if you want to know more about uh, Milky Way at home or Asteroids at home, uh, Delta has done project briefs on both of those. The Asteroids at home one is hosted already. You can listen to it at uh, boink.network or on the same channel on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to this. And Milky Way at Home, like I said earlier, he just recorded. We'll have that uploaded shortly. Uh, and there's another thing you can sign up called sign up for called Science United. It's a less direct 
contacts. It's like a less direct avenue in terms of contact with the science project, but it's a way for people just to sign up and say, I want to do a space project. And then it directs your computation to a space project. Um, so many different places you can send your uh, computation power if you are an ex-SETI cruncher. Uh, Even your phones. If you have phones, I know World Community Grid has some more Android units for you. Ooh, really? Cool. Yep. Uh, we'll try and pull that up maybe next week and talk about that. Uh, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about where Steady's going in the future, I suppose. I think we've we've caught up to where Aliens. we are now, right? <laughs> uh, we did the starts with a dream in 1969, comes to an idea in 1994, comes to a product in 1999, comes to a better product in 2002, gets um, entirely open sourced in like 2013. And here we are in 2020. SETI at home is not leaving. It's not closing, but it's stopping work unit distribution after 20 years of crunching, over 20 years of crunching. Um, and they're, what, what they're going to do is uh, use uh, some software called Nebula, and they're going to go back through the trove of data that they now have, the, the results that we've all been sending back to their project servers over the past 20 years, um, and they're going to look for wow signals. Uh, so they're going to use some software, and this is very similar to how um, uh, medical research works with computations. So with uh, the Stop Zika project, Open Zika, or with any of these projects that are fighting uh, the COVID, uh, the novel coronavirus, um, all they do is they have a giant trove of molecules or proteins or what have you, and they throw them at a problem. And if something fits, they take the thing that fits with a high likelihood and take it into a lab and test it. So this software is going to go through the giant trove of uh, results that we've sent back over the last 20 years of signals from space and find ones, highlight ones that might be interesting. And then it's going to go through again with all the interesting ones and see if they really are interesting. And if they might be interesting, but there isn't like a, a verification signal of we got a signal from this place twice, they're going to go out to a satellite and request satellite time to look at that space again where they got a signal. And uh, maybe they'll get a second signal. But if you get two signals from the same space, that's pretty, uh, that's interesting. You might find something there. Very. Yeah, whatever it is, even if it's just like a pulsar or whatnot, interesting stuff. Uh, so they'll take that into a quote unquote lab. It's not like you're testing these things in beakers, right? But they'll, uh, and then they'll analyze it further and uh, try and figure out what's out there. Yeah, so I, I personally <laughs> think that um, after doing all this uh, extra analysis, I think SETI's definitely going to find some interesting stuff. Uh, it might not necessarily... I have a feeling it's probably not going to be aliens. I'm, I'm a bit of a yeah-nah about that one, but um, I, <laughs> I do think they're going to find a lot of astronomical events. That's what I do think they're going to find. And what they might do is they might match up that data that the computers have crunched over the years and match that up to... Uh, all sorts of different scientific stuff, like searching for supernova, like Einstein at home, or searching for pulsars, as you said. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit doubtful about alien signals. You never know. Um, but uh, we have found interesting signals in the past. We don't know whether they're aliens, but there's always hope out there. And once SETI at home is done with this, I think that they're going to come back bigger and better than ever. I agree. I agree, man. I got a question for you. Um... Yep. What do you think the implications would be of finding a signal that might be aliens and it's not like a pulsar or something like that? Like, what would that do to us? Um, I think uh, it'd. Well, I mean, I guess it'd make news around the world. Um, all the alien lovers would be rejoicing, and all the alien deniers would be crying themselves to sleep. 
Um, and uh, <laughs> I think we'll make. Uh, I think we'll just send some signals out there. We have all the infrastructure to send back signals. We have we have lots of stuff. I mean, yeah, uh, you can send. We've been sending singles, signals out for ages now. We've been streaming television out into space. The Voyager has been streaming signals. The and yeah, even our radio telescopes. They're not only just telescopes, they're also transmitters. So we've been transmitting signals out there for like years now. So hopefully we can hear something back or if we do get something, we can go and communicate to them back. Wouldn't a signal reaching us though be from so far away that it's from also very distant in the past? Yeah, like, I was going to say that, yeah. Be like 400 million so, years old or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Chances are it's probably going to be like... Um, a hundred, a hundred years of delay or something like that, maybe, which is a very long time. Um, which is a little bit unfortunate, but you never know. Maybe because I think with SETI at home, as I said, they're not going to go away. And considering that it takes so long to get a response from signals, not only do you have to wait a hundred years to get there, you have to wait a hundred years for it to come back. So it's good that we've <laughs> been sending signals out there for. I don't know, have we been doing it for centuries now? I think we've been doing it for centuries, like sending out radio signals. Like, I think it's about 100 years, right? 1800s, like 1800s, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, it's a good thing we've been sending out signals that far and that long. So hopefully, going into the future, we'll be looking, we'll probably be seeing a signal from a different alien race or maybe even something else. Do you think people would uh, stop their day, put down their guns, and uh, think about their place in the world, kind of like what happened with Apollo 11. Uh, it just kind of makes people think about who they are and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I think it's a little bit of a different kettle of fish to Apollo 11, uh, because, I mean, have you watched Mars Attacks? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I have. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm thinking a little bit. <laughs> I'm but thinking there's going to be here. some... That, no, I'm, just, I'm saying that some people might think of it that way. So it's not entirely going to be the pride and pride in humanity as Apollo 11 did to us. I think it's going to be a little bit of a mix. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most rational thing to think about. It's, it's not like... I think for a lot of people, it will sort of like, you know, oh, we're, we're not alone in the universe, right? This is a lot of why people are looking for life on Mars, because if we find evidence of life on Mars, it means there's a reason for us to unify as a species, to go out and find other people to fight, right? So eh, maybe, maybe it'll make some people think about it. I think it would be, it's, I think one of the main reasons they did this is to, to do study at home is um, to make people sort of expand how they think about themselves. Like when you land on the moon, when you land on a planetary body, it's not Earth. Like for the first time, you rethink everything. It kind of shifts perspective. I think this would have a similar effect, but I don't think it would cure everything. I think you're right there. Yeah, like just shooting out a hunk of metal with a person in it onto a different rock that's like somewhere out in the universe that's thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of kilometers away yeah it's it's something pretty great and uh, i think if we do manage to find some some of these signals it's gonna uh, it's gonna make news worldwide um but yeah uh, i think seti's gonna find some interesting things in that data i think personally um and yeah hopefully they come back bigger than ever i agree with you i'm looking forward to the future uh i can't wait to see what they find in this stuff uh in this trove of data of 20 years Oh man, I do not envy <laughs> people having to go through this. Yeah, and in the meantime, you can move all your crunching power to some other projects that uh, desperately need it. I know right now we need some more um, drugs to be predicted, uh, such as in World Community Grid and Rosetta. Um, so yeah, it's a great opportunity to go out and see what different projects you can crunch. 
yeah, and learn a little bit more about science. Don't think you have to stick to a space project. Go ahead and jump on like Latin squares and be like, why, what are these? <laughs> I can't speak Latin. <laughs> All right, but yeah, if you want, um, if you want to learn a bit more about different projects, you can check out my project briefs on uh, Boink.network. I have uh, Jeringo's put up all my episodes up there for you. So if you want to figure out what might pique your interest, uh, you can go check that out. And uh, yeah, hopefully you can find a new project for you once SETI stops pumping out the work units. Amen. And other than that, boink.berkeley.edu slash projects.php will take you to the full list, match your hardware, match your whatnot. Delta actually covers how to choose a project in the FAQ episode of this radio show. So go check that out if you have any confusion or just jump into this Discord Ask us any questions. Join us next Friday, maybe, at 4 p.m. EST, give or take, depending on daylight savings. Uh, Another live recording of this show. It's a lot of fun. You get to see some stuff in the chat. And, you know, we kind of hang out before and talk about some fun stuff, like almost hitting cats with our cars, which is very fun. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, guys, have a great week. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Yeah, we'll see you around. See you later. See you later.